sometimes to tell how ancient it is because a lot of the records are destroyed and a lot of the monuments are also destroyed over time because uh, time is the great destroyer so <laughs> and then of course human beings are also destroyers so a lot of things get destroyed by human beings also so due to that all the records aren't there so what we have left in the modern world is some traces of something 
as with everything, just like archaeology is, you get a few bones here, fossils or whatever like that, then you try to construct something, but it's, it's just a little bit of something, you know. It's like coming to Australia and taking a few plants out and saying, this is, this is the vegetation of Australia by taking three plants out of the place. <laughs> so you take a few fossils here and there, and we, we construct a whole theory of what type of people existed at a certain time. So similarly, we take a little evidence from India and we come up with some history of India, but it's uh, all pieces of meal. So we can't always go by, uh, you know, modern methods of analysis. And we do have to rely also on the uh, traditional history that we find in the Puranas and Vedic literature. So in any case, uh, even historically speaking, from modern history point of view, uh, everyone, uh, you know, uh, uh, university professors, etc., they acknowledge that uh, the culture of India is very ancient. And it goes back a long way. Uh, of course, we have many ancient civilizations like Babylonians and what is it, um, Zoroastrian, whatever, and uh, things like Egypt, maybe 3,000 years BC, whatever, 2,000, 1,000, whatever. We've got all sorts of ancient cultures. The remarkable thing about Indian culture, though, is it's continued all the way through where everything else disappeared. So it's a culture that has been continuous from ancient times to the present, as well as being very old. Huh? So we just have a few of the relics in terms of, you know, buildings and stuff, which are now tourist monuments for people. All throughout India we have these things. Some of them are not so ancient, actually. They're only maybe 500 years old or less than 500 years old. But nevertheless, they show the skill uh, and artistry of the Indians at that time in building things out of stone. A lot of the things that we have remaining are stone. They obviously built things out of wood also, but those things no longer remain. Uh, so usually the big palaces and the big temples are made out of stone. So that's all we have left of those civilizations at that time. Uh, so throughout India we have uh, temples. They're the things that remain in different places. And the, this is a famous Puri temple, Jagannath temple, very, very huge. We don't sometimes understand the let's say the magnificence of these structures unless you actually go there and then you're sitting beside it and you see how tall it is. Uh, of course, in terms of modern skyscraper technology, it's probably not very tall, but uh, nevertheless, uh, from a purely stone uh, point of view, making something out of stone, they're, they're very, very uh, monumental structures. Uh, uh, so we have them in the east and the west and the south and whatever. All over India we have these um, stone structures, uh, all beautifully carved. Uh, uh, so India was also famous in ancient times for wealth. That of course is material, but uh, because of that wealth, everybody wanted to come to India. Columbus tried to go to India, shortcut, and he discovered America on the way. Yeah? Otherwise they would have to go through the Mediterranean, no, have to go all around the uh, Cape of Good Hope down that way and come up to India that way, which is a rather treacherous journey. They didn't have the uh, Suez Canal at that time. So the, was a, they thought maybe we'll get a shortcut by going across the Atlantic. Unfortunately, they didn't get there. They found North America instead. So they called those people Indians instead. Uh, so anyway, everyone was looking for India. Why? Because of the wealth. Okay? And so, of course, there was uh, uh, British finally conquered India. 
Uh, of course, I think the French were here, the Portuguese were here, everybody was here trying to get a little wealth, but the uh, British finally, they controlled most of India. And uh, of course, they took a lot of the wealth away. <laughs> so they, were, they had uh, lots of uh, fabulous wealth. Uh, uh, many of the famous jewels of the world came from India, the biggest diamonds in the world came from India. Uh, this is the, the, the big uh, ruby here, big famous ruby, star ruby uh, uh, from India. And on the, the bottom is Queen Elizabeth's crown, and on the top is the Kohinoor diamond, which was taken from India, apparently from some temple. <laughs> Somebody stole it from a temple and gave it to the Queen of England. <laughs> so it's sitting on the top of her crown, a huge diamond. So they had the uh, great diamond wealth in uh, India. Uh, not only white diamonds, but colored diamonds as well. So um, if you look on the internet, you'll find famous diamonds of the world, and you'll find most of them come from India, <laughs> the big diamonds. And they're in the royal families of different, uh, like England or Russia or whatever, the Tsar of Russia. That was on the Tsar of Russia's uh, scepter, that big diamond. Came from India also. So many, many stones like that. Oh, famous stones, you know, green diamonds and pink diamonds and blue diamonds, etc. All came from... Uh, mines in India, and huge diamonds also. So um, that was just diamonds, but of course they had other things like rubies and emeralds, etc. And they had lots of gold as well, so uh, a huge amounts of wealth, uh, which we don't see so much because a lot of it was taken away. However, even recently we find that um, there was a rumor that the, uh, the temple in Trivandrum in South India, Kerala state, uh, that was, they had some secret chambers there. So that was the rumor. So then eventually the government investigated and they found there was. So they opened one of them up. And then they discovered those huge amounts of treasure in there. Unimaginable amounts, huge amounts, which is, is so much uh, wealth was there in one. And there's another one they haven't opened up. Even that one is huge amounts of wealth in terms of uh, things that were given to the jewelry that was given to the deity. Uh, that was only accumulated over maybe, you know, 700 years or so like that, but a huge amount. So uh, uh, all over India, there was huge amounts of wealth. This is um, Hampi. This was uh, capital of Krishna Devarai, who was a very powerful king in, in Karnataka area. Uh, around the time of Lord Chaitanya. So it is that Lord Chaitanya actually visited this place also. So uh, that was a very wealthy place. And during his reign, it was when the first Europeans also managed to get to India on a steady basis. And uh, he welcomed those Europeans, I think they were Portuguese or Spanish, into his palace. And he put them in the guest room. And the guest room was astonishing because it was solid gold walls. <laughs> the, the, the guests were very shocked. <laughs> they, there was gold everywhere. Yeah? And they, um, that, here we see this line of buildings. So that was actually the marketplace, the jewelry market, the gem market. So when the Europeans walked down that street, they just saw uh, each stall was a different seller and they had baskets of jewels for sale on the street. Jewels everywhere. The whole street was lined up with jewels, you know. Uh, so they were amazed by the, the wealth that was in that one kingdom in India at that time. 
so a very, very uh, remarkable amount. That's maybe 500 years ago also, only 500 years ago. So we can't imagine what was, it was like before that time, uh, the amount of wealth, material wealth that was there. Apart from the material wealth, India had uh, lots of knowledge and uh, they had the first university was established, the you know, world's first university in uh, Takshila, about 700 BC. Uh, a lot of buildings are still there, the remnants of the buildings are still there. Uh, so they're very interested in education, they had libraries, etc., uh, places for teaching. And we know that uh, medicine is uh, a tradition in India, uh, actually stems from the Vedas. It's called Ayurveda, and its founder is an avatar of the Lord called Dhanvantari. Like millions of years ago, Dhanvantari appeared. However, we do have modern texts, so-called modern texts, which were written uh, before Christ, uh, Ayurvedic texts. Uh, and these are still used today, those same texts. And they have Ayurvedic universities where they study Ayurveda medicine. And you can get a degree in that, and you can practice it also. Uh, so it's tradi traditional medicine that is also legal and um, practice now in the present day. The knowledge is being carried on to the present day using those ancient texts, which are over 2,500 years old. <laughs> so there's no other culture in the world, I think, that's got a tradition like that where they've carried on. Maybe the Chinese, but maybe I think it's, it's not so ancient as that. But uh, so we have this medicine uh, carried on. Uh, a lot of it was herbal medicine. Uh, so Charaka was one of the uh, famous persons. Another one is Shushuta. And Shushuta not only was interested in medicine, he's considered to be the father of surgery. And even in the Western world, they recognize that he was the first surgeon in the world. Uh, so he was, uh, was particularly useful because of uh, soldiers getting wounded, so they had to do something to them, so they had to start cutting some places. So uh, he was the first person to introduce surgical methods. So long before we have this in the Western world. Actually, for many years in the West, it was taboo. You couldn't cut open a body, a human body. And then finally, when the Renaissance came, then they started cutting people open. They discovered what was inside the body before that. No one would cut a body open, and they relied on the Greeks for the knowledge of what was inside your body. Nobody knew it was the, where the lungs or the heart or the kidney were, gallbladder. They didn't know. It was just based on the theory of the Greeks. And they said, that, okay, there's a gallbladder and a spleen and this and that. And, you know, they had a theory of medicine. So that was passed on in, to Europe, and it went through the church, etc. So all the doctors based all of their medicine on the Greeks, but they never cut open a body, so they never know what was in it <laughs> until, you know, uh, 500 years ago, less than 500 years ago. Yeah. So very, very uh, um, less advanced. So then after that, they started surgery, etc., in the Western world. Uh, so apart from that, then we have uh, communication and language. So we have the uh, Sanskrit language and its older version called Vedic Sanskrit. Uh, uh, so this language is very, very old and is considered one of the oldest languages in the world. Uh, uh, according to modern scholars, it goes back 5,000 years, uh, which is very ancient. Uh, there are other languages also available at that time, and later on the Egyptians had their language, and at this time I think uh, in Persia, Zoroaster had his language, I don't know what language it was, but 
whatever it was. Uh, but those languages have never been passed down. And in fact, the Egyptian language and script got lost, the hieroglyphics. Nobody knew what it was until a few hundred years ago. They found a deciphering tablet, the Rosetta Stone. <laughs> but the Sanskrit languages, it was, it's old, but it's been passed down until the present day. And people still speak it. And they still read the text. So that's quite remarkable, an ancient language which is still used, uh, so quite unique. Uh, apart from that, of course, Sanskrit, though it is an ancient language, is also a very sophisticated language, so it could be used for many things. Okay? So they use it for literature, they also use it for science, for mathematics, chemistry, and so many things. So it was a greatly flexible language as well as being a, a poetic language. Uh, and it's, it's um, in the modern age, some uh, computer people say actually the, the Sanskrit language is so logically constructed and it has rules for everything such that it's very good for making computer language because computer language is based on logic. So it's much more, it's less irregular than uh, let's say English language was quite <laughs> strange <laughs> in the spelling and whatever like that. Everything is very methodical in Sanskrit. <laughs> and along with the language, we have a study of the human voice. How do we make sounds with our mouth to make words? So that is the study of linguistics. So Panini was the uh, famous grammarian who made the sutras, uh, gra gra grammatical sutras, and he was interested in um, how the voice is used and what parts of the uh, voice uh, make different sounds like that. So he's the first linguist in the whole world, fourth uh, century BC. And most countries, it's, it's, it's a modern science, you know, maybe less than a hundred years old, but uh, he was the first one to start investigating the uh, human voice and how where the sounds come from. Uh, India was also very advanced, advanced in mathematics and astronomy. Of course, around the world we'll find uh, all sorts of cultures were interested in looking at the sky. <laughs> Egyptians were looking at the sky, Babylonians were looking at the sky. Uh, in North America, they were looking at the sky. In uh, ancient England, Stonehenge, they were looking at the sky. Everybody looked at the sky in ancient times. And uh, similarly, the people of India were looking at the sky also. And uh, why? Because we get stars and we get planets moving. Huh? And the planets do not move regularly. We can say the sun moves regularly. One, one year is 12 months and it goes through everything. Moon is a little more irregular. It moves, but sometimes it seems to go fast, sometimes it seems to go slow. That's a little bit of a problem. That's why we have irregular titties for the moon, because it's, it's not, not like the sun. Day and night, day and night, it's all equal, but that's not. Huh? So, uh, and then we have the other planets, which are more irregular and smaller to see. But nevertheless, they're moving. So in order to find out what, what is the formula of their movement, they had to make records, and they had to look at the sky and calculate every day how much the planet has moved, and to keep records for years on end. And finally they get a pattern. But some planets move very slow, like Saturn 27 years to go around the zodiac. So they had to keep <laughs> records for 
hundred years or so before they could, you know, it would go four times around the zodiac to make a proper formula or whatever. So uh, they had to keep observing and observing and keeping records for long periods of time. So that took a lot of methodology and patience. And then they needed instruments to do that. So these are some of the uh, astronomical instruments they used to observe the sky and then make their records. So that's for the astronomy part. Uh, then we have, in order to make a theory or a formula for a movement of a planet, you need very complex mathematics. It's not just circles and squares, <laughs> plus and minus, etc. Uh, you have to use trigonometry and so many calculus and so many things because of the irregular orbits of the planets and they move backwards and forwards and whatever like this. Uh, so therefore, they also excelled in mathematics at a very early age in uh, Indian history. Uh, and, of course, we look at the number, modern numbers, actually they come from the, this is the Brahmi script, the Brahmi numbers before Christ. So, actually our numbers are derived from those numbers. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And then, the zero, very, very important number. So this also was used in the Indian system also, the, the number zero. We see in uh, Roman numerals, there is no zero. And, and they get very clumsy figures to make a, a simple number like 50 or 100 or 300. And they have to start making all these little symbols. So very difficult to do anything with Roman numerals you know, to calculate anything. But um, the system with uh, 9 plus a zero made it very easy. Uh, they also did like, you know, where we have cubes and squares and all this. They also did that. So, very, very advanced. So, it said that Aryabhata, 500 AD, he invented the zero. Of course, it could, be of, uh, could have been in use before then even. Uh, he was also very observant of the sky, so therefore, he explained that eclipses were caused by the shadows cast by the earth and the moon. Yeah? And that's how we got eclipses, so much like the modern explanation, yeah? like that. So, in other words, uh, India was not a backwards country that didn't have any science and they, they weren't very logical uh, or methodical. They were doing things very methodically. Uh, he also uh, explained that the Earth was spherical and it moved around on, a, on an axis like this. Uh, long before, over 1,500 years before, they came up with the same explanation in the Western world. So they were very observant, and they, they had uh, very great uh, what, uh, mathematical abilities. Uh, later on, about 1200 AD, when uh, Europe was still in the Dark Ages, Bhaskaracharya, uh, uh, he invented differential calculus and trigonometry, which were later invented, reinvented in the Western world by Newton, okay. and many other things as well, uh, algebra, etc., and even minus numbers minus 5, minus 10. These were used in Indian mathematics also, long before the Western world got into minus numbers. Huh? So, uh, in this way, uh, India and science had advanced quite a lot. However, uh, India is more famous for its uh, spiritual development. And uh, there's a huge collection of literatures dedicated to uh, spiritual life. So we have the Vedas, the Puranas, the Smriti Shastras, etc. Huge amount of literature available. Uh, the Vedas, again, are considered to be 
very old. Uh, the Rig Veda by modern scholars is said to be 5,000 years ago old, which is older than anything, uh, the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, Quran, um, Buddhist literature, much more ancient than any of these things. So just in terms of years, the Vedas are much older, by thousands of years. Uh, so, uh, of course, that's modern history. They trace out ages like that. According to tradition of the Vedas itself, there is no history. <laughs> it's eternal. It appears in every creation of every universe in the same form, so nobody really creates the Vedas. It comes out of Brahma's mouth, but it's not created. It's the same Veda that manifests in each universe again and again and again. Uh, so in any case, uh, by modern things, I say, okay, it's ancient, but uh, according to tradition, it's eternal. So anyway, very ancient. Uh, and, and quite vast. It's not one little book. It's many, many books. Uh, so in its present form, we have four Vedas. Rig Veda, Yajurveda, Samveda, Tarva Veda. Each Veda is again divided into four sections. Brahmanas, Aranyakas, Upanishads, and Samhita section. So for each Veda, we'll have that. Uh, as well as that, we get um, uh, the um, Angas of the Vedas as well. Uh, uh, and we get all these other uh, things like uh, Upavedas, like uh, uh, Gandharva Veda for music, or Stapha Veda for architecture, or Dhanur Veda for military arts, etc., which are separate from this. Uh, so in any ways, we get a lot of literature. Uh, mainly, the, the Vedas are these four sections, the Brahmanas, Aranyakas, Upanishads, and Samhita. So the Brahmanas and Aranyakas are called Purvamimams or Karmakanda. So this deals with the material aspect. Do sacrifices go to Swargaloka? <laughs> Upanishads are called Uttaramimams or Gyankanda. These deal with knowledge to get liberation. And also Bhakti is included in that. Uh, uh, Samhita section is called Upasanakanda, the worship section. So they're uh, prayers offered to different devatas. So very vast. Besides that, then we get other huge works. For instance, we get the Mahabharata. So this is a very famous epic uh, written by Veda Vyas. It's also very famous, and even today, it is still famous. And uh, everybody is eager to hear the stories from Mahabharata even today. Uh, it's also a huge work. Uh, it's an epic. Uh, we have famous epics in the world, like uh, Homer in Greece wrote Iliad and Odyssey, which are classics, you know. And in um, England, they started studying, in Europe, they started studying these things in the Renaissance. It's very wonderful works, you know. But those epics are actually very small compared to Mahabharata, <laughs> maybe one twentieth the size or something like that. It's a huge work, uh, very huge work. Uh, and, uh, as I said, still popular today. So it's not something that died out. And within that, of course, we get the Bhagavad Gita, which is a summary of the Vedic teachings in the Upanishads. So it's very valid for that reason as well. And, of course, we have another famous epic, the Ramayana, also very popular even today in India. And uh, this was so popular, it spread all over the place. It spread into Thailand, spread into Indonesia, spread into China even. Uh, 
and uh, therefore we'll find temples for Rama uh, in all these different places and they enact the story of Rama uh, in Indonesia or Thailand, whatever. So, um, in other words, uh, we have uh, two aspects of knowledge in ancient India. One was the material knowledge with science, etc. And then we have the spiritual knowledge. In the modern world, uh, we also have knowledge. But what is that knowledge? Uh, the major part is material. That's what we call knowledge. There are other things like philosophy and religion and studies, things they study in university, but it's not considered so crucial. Uh, real knowledge means science, basically, <laughs> in the modern world. Uh, so this is, this is our modern concept that came out of the West. Um, whereas in ancient India, they had both aspects going on simultaneously. Uh, and it was balanced. They had spiritual and they had material. At one time, there was no material knowledge. It was all spiritual, we could say, with the church dominating everything in the dark ages. <laughs> and then finally, uh, there was a revolt uh, with the Renaissance. And then the science, uh, the, the, a few bold scientists started proclaiming things again, which weren't according to the religion. And a lot of them got persecuted or killed or burned at the stake or whatever. <laughs> Uh, for their ideas, but gradually that the, the science with Copernicus and uh, who else was there, um, Galileo, uh, persons like that, uh, uh, they were they challenged the church. So the church was like a, an enemy of science. Uh, so first church one, very powerful, but gradually uh, the people began to have more trust in science. And then medicine developed, and they, they developed microscopes, and they started cutting bodies open and did surgeries, etc., like this. So, gradually, uh, Western science and observation and all this took over, and it gained more hold, and religion got less powerful. But there's always a fight going on. Yeah. But uh, as time went on, with more and more uh, scientific discoveries, science got a, a bigger hold and a bigger hold and a bigger hold. Yeah until we come to like uh, Darwin, huh? uh, someone like that. Uh, uh, so when he put his theory out of evolution, of course, there was an outcry in the church. But eventually it won. Uh, the evolution won. And even in America, I think there was a big trial about whether they could have evolution taught in schools. And the church was opposing it, and some people were opposing it in America. Finally, they said, okay, it's allowed. <laughs> so they, they allowed it. And that was maybe, I don't know, 100 years ago or so. So anyway, uh, this, this conflict between uh, church and modern scientific knowledge went on in Western world for quite a long time. And finally, science won. So now nobody talks about religion anymore in universities. It's all science. Whereas, in the Vedic uh, life, uh, there was no real contradiction to the, the two things were both there and they didn't fight with each other as they fought in the West. So this may also be um, related to the human brain itself. This is, of course, taking a rather crude explanation, um, a Western explanation also. Uh, if you uh, look at your brain, your brain has two parts to it, two halves, which are actually separable. <laughs> They're not joined together except a little place at the bottom. So there are like two personalities there, 
So you have a left brain and you have a right brain. So in the picture here we see the left brain is kind of grayish and there's little compartments there. And there's little people in the compartments doing their little work, like uh, computers or whatever, and adding things up and doing things like this. So this is your logical brain, the left brain. And this is what you use for science. This is what you use for mathematics. This is what you use for analysis. This is what you use for dividing things up. That's the left brain. Then you have the right brain. We say, well, what's the right brain for? Like, uh, science is left brain, and that's all there is in the world. What do we need a right brain for? <laughs> Nevertheless, it's there. It's half of your intelligence, so to speak. Uh, not, so, not much used in the modern world, but it's there. And there we see that brain is a little bit different color. It's green. There's some hills there. There's some trees there. People are lying on the grass, flying kites, and having picnics and everything. <laughs> so they're not uh, stuck in these little holes uh, doing logical things at all. It's not a logical brain at all. It's a creative brain. So the two brains are very, very different. And we got both of them in us. See, the right brain is very intuitive, and it doesn't like to divide things up. Uh, this is related to that, this is a cause, this is an effect, like that. It, it looks at things in a whole and sees some sort of relationship, uh, a wholeness in everything. And it doesn't necessarily divide into three dimensions, it could uh, go into other dimensions as well. Left brain is very logical. It likes to divide things up, analyze things, classify things, uh, make little parts, etc., and make everything into limited three dimensions, yeah? like that. Uh, ultimately, uh, the left brain uh, results in a very limited identity. This is what we call the false ego. We think in terms of me. I am seeing this, I am enjoying this, I am uh, doing this, etc. So we uh, limit ourselves to ourself. You know, everything is related to ourself. Which creates isolation. We don't see the whole, we don't see how we're related to something else. We just see everything in terms of ourself. So everyone tends to get isolated, and then of course we compete with each other, then we get stress, and then of course we get emotional frustration, erratic behavior, anger, fear, depression, all these sorts of mental things come out of it as well. So in other words, by over-dependence on the left brain, we end up with a lot of problems in the modern world. Yeah. So, uh, we are not trained to use the right brain, and in fact, early in our life, we're trained to more or less suppress that and use our left brain. So little children, then they're taught to speak, and they have to taught to speak logically, then they learn letters and numbers and stuff like this, and they learn all this, memorize everything like this, and they read books and stuff like this. And so they go through uh, like 20 years of, 25 years almost of left brain activity. So the left brain becomes very, very strong and they're thinking always in terms of left brain. And the right brain has no opportunity to do anything. So we get a, a great imbalance there. Okay? So on the other hand, if someone is using the right brain, it's very difficult to communicate with people who are using the left brain. <laughs> and they may think it's crazy. How are we to express things in terms of, you know, uh, normal concepts when we're, we're not thinking in terms of, you know, normal, logical relationships. Sometimes you may commu uh, communicate through uh, images instead of things, uh, instead of logic. Uh, but then when the person using the left brain will interpret that, he will find it a little peculiar, maybe ridiculous even. <laughs> so that's why we have in like the Bhagavatam, 
we do have uh, a description of the universe which looks a little strange <laughs> and it's described like a big lotus etc so well, why, why are we using this lotus figure here for describing the universe or the uh, material world you know uh, you can't figure it out why lotus why lotus all the time but nevertheless it's not only in the Bhagavatam we'll find it is common throughout art, etc., or temples, etc. They've got this lotus everywhere <laughs> to describe the world and the universe. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not a logical thing. Uh, so we can say that's uh, something that's coming from the right brain rather than the left brain. Huh? So, uh, therefore, when we disuse the left brain, we limit our version of reality. We get stuck in a certain way of seeing things and doing things, etc. And uh, the, the right brain vision is completely suppressed, and therefore gets rejected. So it's difficult to um, correlate the two things together. So as I said, we have uh, the example of the universe in the Bhagavatam, and it talks about a, um, a huge meru in the middle of the uh, universe, and there's uh, a lotus-shaped island around it, and there's concentric islands around it with huge oceans, etc. And it talks about upper planets and lower planets, etc., which we can't even see. So, all of this looks a little bit strange to our modern um, analytical uh, vision, quite different. It looks like everything is flat, and now we know, we think everything is round and spherical like this, you know, and take pictures from the, uh, with the satellites, and we get a, a spherical Earth or whatever, but here it's opposite. It, we, everything is flat. Huh? It's a flat vision of everything. And this, there's this little, th little thing in the middle is Mount Meru, and around that is our little dweepa. <laughs> And then there's an ocean, then there's another island, and another ocean. Who would ever have thought of making a universe with circular islands, of all things? <laughs> Sounds very strange. <laughs> and here's that central island again. And our, 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 our uh, place is in the little corner here. One, one after the mountain is little edge, that's Bart Varsha at the very edge. Then we get, I think, Hari Varsha and Kimpurusha Varsha up there, where Hanuman is, I think, in one of them. So, uh, a very strange vision of the world. And then we have lower planetary systems that go down to hellish planets at the bottom, very dark areas, like little caves stuck in the ground, one after the other. Where do we see those you know, in the modern world? This looks a little strange. We don't, nobody talks about those. And of course we get upper planets again, and they go upwards, and it's not, you know, it's not the planets that we're seeing, it's something more subtle than that. Uh, this is an interesting thing, Sarabhuta has it in his book. Uh, if we um, just visualize the Earth as stationary and everything else moving, stars and planets moving, they're not going to move in circles because the orbits are not related to the Earth, they're related to the Sun. Yeah? So if we move everything in relation to the Earth, what we get for, let's say, a planet, I think it's, maybe it's Venus or something, hmm, then Ultimately, the planet looks like the, the, the orbit of the planet in relation to the Earth looks like this, <laughs> which looks like a flower. Yeah. And we can take this for each planet. Each planet will have a particular flower pattern or going with it. Also, like so, uh, the, the idea of lotus and flower is not so foreign after all if we analyze it in a different way. Like that, and therefore we have Jumbo Deepers having a lotus like this also. <laughs> If we look in a larger sphere, not just, you know, the Earth and the solar system, we look at our whole galaxy, like the Milky Way. 
It also looks like a big flower and actually very geometrically laid out also according to certain uh, rules of geometry. It's not haphazard again. Or we can go further. Uh, if you take all the galaxies together then we get a universe. What is the shape of a universe? Of the universe in the Western the modern science? We don't actually know but they speculate it's like this. This is the shape of the universe. <laughs> And it's got a thingy in the middle like this, which looks kind of like the middle Mount Meru, and then we've got this whole lotus-like thing coming out <laughs> around it again. So that, again, the lotus is not such a, a foreign thing even to science itself, but it's, it's looked at a little differently, that's all. It's a lotus-like shape. Uh, so in other words, uh, when the Bhagavatam makes descriptions like this, uh, if we just analyze it really rationally, it may look a little ridiculous because that's not what we see in our modern world. Nevertheless, we could say if we were to give up this uh, totally logical um, left brain analysis and switch to the right brain, then we could begin to appreciate it from other angles. Uh, so my whole point here is that the um, modern civilization has emphasized the left brain and this has created an imbalance in us. Now in ancient India they didn't have this, uh, this strange emphasis on left brain only. They had a balance. They did have the left brain stuff because they were analyzing things. They built astronomical observatories. They had how they developed mathematics. So they had that left brain but side by side they had the spiritual development and all the spiritual literature to go with it. So it, there was no war between the two things. In the modern world, it's all science and left brain and very little right brain at all. There it was very, very balanced. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's the healthier uh, combination for a person to have development of both. If we have an imbalanced brain, they you end up with stress and you end up with a lot of problems. So uh, we should try to balance the two things out. <laughs> in, in the um, uh, Vedic conception, of course, they don't talk about the brain and the right brain and the left brain. That's a, a modern uh, medical explanation, but it's, it's very interesting. Uh, but they have something a little more subtle than brain. Uh, we, instead of the brain, they talk about the sukshma sarir or the subtle body, which is not even visible materially. And it goes with you after you leave your body. So it's not this brain here. Huh? But it does contain your thoughts, and it does contain your impressions, it contains your karma, and your memories, and it can take you into the next body. That's called the subtle body. Yeah? So it can also think and do so many things. We have body, uh, intelligence, false ego, all in the subtle body, along with the karma, etc. And the pranas. So uh, this is what is uh, the, the real uh, what intellect and the real emotion, etc. It comes from the subtle body. Uh, which is also material, but subtle. So modern science doesn't even know about this aspect yet, or very little about this aspect of the human being. They're only uh, related to the gross element, which is, we can say, you know, our left brain intelligence is looking at what we see and trying to analyze it. So, but above that we have this other one, which is not so logical also. And if you were to observe, because you have senses in your subtle body, as well as in the gross body, so if you're to observe with your subtle body and your subtle mind the world, you may not see it like this. <laughs> this is coming out of our left brain. 
if we go to the right brain and also try to employ the subtle thing, we may see something quite different. So that actually, of course, we can say is maybe what happens to the yogis. Uh, they do some meditation and then they suddenly go out of the body and they see a different world here. Go to the Himalayas, they see uh, Svargaloka up there instead of mountains and snow, <laughs> whatever. Uh, or on, on a lesser level, not even yogis, uh, even in the Western world they have, uh, what is it, out of the body, what do they call it, um, astral travel. People do astral travel and things like that, so they relax and they go into a state, an alpha state, and then they kind of separate out of the body and travel out of the body. So they also say that, look, you, uh, you can observe things, <laughs> but you don't observe with this eye, it's like a, a spherical eye. You observe things with a spherical eye. <laughs> you can see everything at once, which is a little distracting. <laughs> so you have to do like a horse, they put little blinkers on the horse. So you've got to mentally kind of focus your vision in one direction and, and, and you know, go in one direction and see in one direction. But it's quite a different thing because you've got like a, a spherical eye on you and it goes all over the place. <laughs> and of course, you can also just think and go into a place also. It's, it's like quite different from the logic of, you know, material physics and whatever. So that's just on the subtle body level. Okay. And beyond that, we've got the soul, the atma, which is spiritual. The other thing is the subtle body also is material. And the right brain and the left brain are material. But the Atma is spiritual. That's ultimately the perceiver of everything. Yeah. And beyond that, of course, we have Supreme Lord, who's got all intelligence and all knowledge. Yeah. So we have m many levels of, uh, in which we can perceive things, but we're stuck on the left brain at the moment. Uh, maybe we get a little bit of the right brain, then we can get the subtle body, then we get the Atma, that we can get to understand about Supreme Lord. So this is what we see with our left brain and modern science. Yeah. But we do have this other body, which is also there. This is also somewhat uh, recognized in Chinese medicine, because they've got meridians there, etc. It's recognized in Ayurveda. They understand the pranas are operating in the body. That's not gross body at all. It's something else operating again. And of course, then we have the chakras and everything in the body and yoga system. It's also in the subtle body. And then we have another level above that. We got the spiritual level with the Atma, and we have Supreme Lord. So we have many, many levels that we're not looking at now. So if we only use our left brain. We're stuck in the material body, and it's not complete knowledge. It's very incomplete. So we can't come to a final, uh, even a perfect conclusion about <laughs> even our, our body because it's related to the subtle body, and we can't separate the two things. And it's also related to the Atma or the soul. So uh, we have very limited knowledge. Uh, as well, in, in the, uh, like the Bhagavatam, we'll find the whole analysis of the material world uh, is, is like scientific analyzed, but it's different from modern science. Modern science, we analyze elements, maybe it's 118 elements or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in the uh, Bhagavatam version, it's not that at all. It's five gross elements, mind, subtle senses, gunas, ahankara, mahatapam, prakriti. So much simpler classification. And some of these elements are invisible. Can't even see them. Uh, in fact, even the gross elements we can't see. <laughs> they have to combine in certain ways, then we get things that we see in this world. But the water element, we don't see that. Earth element, we don't see it. 
They have to combine, then we get earth, water, etc. So the, the um, analysis of elements is a little different in the Vedas. Yeah? That's the, the gross part. Then, of course, we've got the spiritual part, the Atman, Supreme Lord, and the spiritual world. Not discussed in science at all, but this is the important part of the Vedas. They discuss the spiritual part like that. So, uh, in the modern world, of course, we, we're, we're stuck in our left brain. Uh, how do we, how do we uh, activate the, the right brain somehow? Or how do we get people to appreciate what's coming from the right brain or coming from the uh, Atma, etc., coming from spiritual literature, the, the spiritual aspect? Huh? Uh, so, uh, to do that, we need some spiritual sadhana. Mm -hmm. However, uh, we can also even look at this from a little bit of a, a material point of view. <laughs> there are some people who are speculating now, I don't know if it's true or not, but there's a little uh, gland in your brain, right in the center between the two portions of your brain, it's called the pineal gland, or pineal gland. <laughs> called a pineal gland because it looks like a little pine cone, a little, little thing like this. And it starts developing when you're in the womb, and it stays there throughout your life. But scientists don't actually know what it's for. What's the real function of that thing? They know it's related to some uh, hormones and things like that. They're not quite really sure why all human beings have this little thingy there. But the speculation among some more advanced people is that this actually is like the third eye. <laughs> you stimulate this, then you can actually get higher vision. You stimulate this, you can get into your, it's a bridge between your like left brain, right brain. Of course, it goes beyond that then you can get a higher experience as well. So this is like the, the way of getting out of your left brain mentality. <laughs> yeah. So if you can stimulate this, fine. Uh, then of course it, it has mechanical, um, we call it um, uh, explanation for, if it gets stimulated then it releases certain hormones and certain chemicals and this relates to other chemicals and it does something to your whole brain so then you, <laughs> you get a, a mystic experience like that. So. Uh, with bliss or whatever. But how to stimulate that? Hmm? So, meditation. That's the process of stimulating that gland or whatever, so you can get a spiritual experience. Uh, meditate, then you can stimulate your pituitary and your pineal glands and like that. Then you get your right brain operating, you get subtle perception, and then finally we get into the, the, you know, the mind and all that, and finally we get to the spiritual perception with the Atma. Okay? Uh, so it all takes place by controlling the mind properly. Okay, there's a little bit extra I just added on here. So, as I said, we have to go to the scriptures because um, scientifically we can't really explain everything and uh, research everything about the Atma, etc. <laughs> uh, so, uh, we have to go to the uh, scriptures. So, so the uh, Vedic scriptures, we would say, why Vedic scriptures? Why can't we use the Bible? Why can't we use the Quran, etc.? So, uh, the Vedas have a very uh, complete conception of God that covers everything and, and includes all religious concepts of God. Uh, and therefore, it can actually solve the problems. Sometimes we have what is called, what is this, interfaith dialogues we have with different groups like that. Everyone talks a little speaking like that, whatever. Uh, but we'll see that the concepts of God are a little bit limited, you know? And they get stuck in, you know, uh, their own uh, beliefs like that. Uh, the Veda concept is quite liberal and quite broad, uh, so we don't have to have these quarrels about who's right and who's wrong. 
So there's a unique, uh, for instance, uh, we have in the Bhagavatam this concept of three aspects of God. The very impersonal aspect with no form, no qualities, etc. Uh, which many people in the modern world, even scientists, will appreciate that. Yeah, there's something, you know, indefinable something up there which is not material consciousness or something. So that's called Brahman. We have a little more refined Brahman. That is, uh, Brahman gets a little personality and does things. He creates the material world. He observes everything in the material world. So he's like a superior conscious entity. And he interacts with the material world. Okay? Uh, he's a person. That's called Paramatma. Then we have a more detailed perception of God. It's called Bhagavan. So this is a person, God person, who has a specific beautiful form, uh, wonderful qualities, spiritual qualities, and he does spiritual activities. He's very, very attractive. Yeah. So all of these are uh, presented as being parts of God. And you could realize or appreciate any of these. And we can still say, you're appreciating God. So he appreciate the impersonal aspect, okay, it's an aspect of God. If you appreciate the personal aspect of God, fine, it's also God. So in that sense, uh, uh, the Vedas are very uh, inclusive. Huh? We'll see that uh, most religions of the world are somewhere between the Brahman and Paramatma in their conceptions. Something spiritual, but we don't want to give it a form. Huh? If we go to Shankar, no form, no qualities, no activities, nothing. So that's quite extreme. Go to Buddhism, again, nothing. But if we go to Christianity, then okay, no form, no qualities, but he does a little activity, creates the world. So it's a little bit of Paramatma kind of mixed into the concept of God. So we can say, yes, this is a, this is a bona fide conception of God, but of course it's not complete, because we should go to also to the Bhagavan concept. But at least it's partially correct. <laughs> so it's like seeing um, if we do one sadhana, we'll get the impersonal. If we do another sadhana, we can get the slightly personal with Paramahama. Another sadhana, we can appreciate the uh, personal aspect of God. But that means bhakti yoga. So through jnana yoga, we can appreciate Brahman, the impersonal. Through yoga, we can appreciate slightly personal, Paramahama. And through bhakti, we can appreciate Bhagavan. Yeah. Like that. So, okay, so we can say, which is superior? Uh, so, of course, those who are interested in Brahman say, that's superior, that's supreme. <laughs> uh, if we're interested in Bhagavan as devotees, we say, okay, the personal aspect is supreme. Uh, so, according to Bhagavatam, they're all part of the same entity. They're all one, so we really can't separate them. But, the personal aspect is complete, and the Brahman aspect, the impersonal, is his byproduct. Like uh, the sun is there, and the light is there. So the light is the impersonal aspect coming from the sun, like that. So, and in the sun we have the deity of the sun who is personal. So therefore, the personal aspect is the origin, and the Brahman is the aspect of it. So therefore, if you want uh, complete as uh, realization, you can't go for the personal, and it includes the impersonal also. Yeah. So, um, all religions, I mean, most religions of the world be, will be stuck somewhere between the uh, impersonal and slightly personal. And very few get to the personal level, like that. Um, but we say all the Vaishnava religions or uh, groups, they, they get to the personal level. Not only that, 
uh, most religions will struggle to give a form to God. No form. We don't want a form. Maybe a little bit of form. Slight form. Or imaginary form or something. Uh, so, um, no struggle if we uh, become a Vaishnava. But not only that, we say God can have many forms. Not just one form. But many forms. Which is more remarkable. <laughs> In fact, many different forms. Not just human forms. Sometimes people accuse uh, religious people, oh, you're thinking of God and it's anthropomorphic, so you just imagine God in a human form like you are. But we say, no, God can be anything. He can be a fish, matsya. He can be a turtle, kurma. He can be a pig, varaha. Uh, he can be a small dwarf, vamana. He can be a half lion, it's nishramadev. Or of course, he can be a human form like Buddha or Krishna or Rama. Or he can be a horse form, like Hayagriva. He can be a bird form, like uh, Hamsa. He can be a snake form, Anantashesha. A whole variety of forms <laughs> of Supreme Lord, not just one form, but many forms, but it's one God. So many people, of course, will say, oh, Hindus, they believe in many gods. But actually, no, one God. All these many gods are actually devatas. They're not God at all. They have material bodies. But yes, God has many forms, but he's only one. He has his avatar forms, but he's actually one, one supreme god. Hmm. This is the famous picture uh, uh, at uh, Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel. Uh, he had to God creating the world somehow, so he had to put a person there. So he put an old man there as God. <laughs> of course, ultimately the Christians say this is only symbolic, it doesn't mean, because actually God has no form. But they gave him old form because they wanted someone ancient. <laughs> so they gave him an old form. Huh? So we also believe in a form of God, but we say he's never old. He's very young. God does not age. He's very young. He's a, he's a youth. <laughs> and apparently Krishna is even a little boy, or a little baby even. Yeah? So in other words, we don't limit our concept of God to you know, a certain thing. Yeah? Another point, of course, is that what does God do if, uh, besides create the universe? So this is one major thing in, in Christian and Islam, that, okay, God creates the universe. What else does he do? <laughs> So, uh, in the Vedic literature, we have the Leela of God, the activities of God, and we have many activities in relation to his devotees. So we have the whole of the Ramayana devoted to the activities of Ramchandra, and what he's doing with his devotees, like Hanuman and the monkeys, etc., and Sita Devi. Or we have the whole of the Mahabharata. This is about Pandavas and Krishna, and their activities together. Or the Bhagavatam, again, we have all sorts of activities that the Lord described. And these become very attractive to people. So Ramayana is very popular even today in India. Mahabharata is still popular. Uh, Bhagavatam is, uh, gives details of uh, Krishna's Leela, his activities, also very popular. So, the, we, uh, besides struggling with the concept, does God have a form or have no form, and what is there activity or no activity? Usually, uh, the concept of God is something, someone to be feared. If they, they have a God, then he's a fearful person, a punisher. And this comes out very strongly in the Old Testament of the, uh, the Bible. God is a punisher. Uh, and, and, you know, you get hellish punishment, etc. Uh, so again, um, a little bit limiting God. So, opposite of that, we say actually God is full of love. That's his main property. 
And therefore we define Bhagavan in terms of rasa. He has five loving relationships with the devotees, neutral, servitude, uh, vatsalya, friendship, and conjugal love. So it's all loving relationships which are emphasized in terms of Bhagavan. Like that. So you can treat God as your son. You can treat God as your lover, as with Radha and Krishna. Another problem is how the Lord relates to the material world. Because we see there is suffering in the material world. So this is a very difficult question to answer in philosophy and in religion. And most religions struggle with this. Why does God leave us to suffer? And because they don't get a good answer, people often reject religion. So, uh, the Vedic literature has a very simple answer. It's not that God is causing suffering. It's that uh, we create the suffering on ourselves by our activities. God makes a law, which is a very just law, and because of that, if we break the law or we uh, do the violent activities, we get the suffering. So, uh, if we don't do the suffering, we don't get the suffering. If we don't do the bad activity, the sinful activity, violent activity, we don't get the suffering. So, it's a responsibility of the human being. This is what creates the bad world, not the Supreme Lord. Huh? Another point, of course, is that um, uh, do we have life after death? And how many lives? One life or many life? So in many religions, we're, we're, we only have one life. Now, after we're dead, finished. No more birth, no more death. So you have to do everything now in this lifetime, and then you get condemned forever, or you go to heaven, one or the other. <laughs> Which doesn't seem very fair also. So we say, no, you keep taking birth and birth and birth and birth and birth, one after the other which we have in common with Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism also. They say we have many, many chances and many, many births. So this is a more, we can say, reasonable solution to the idea of what happens next. We can take birth and another birth and another birth and another birth. And again, we're subject to karma and we can have uh, suffering or we can have enjoyment depending on what activities we do. Like that. So, uh, in other words, uh, we can go on forever in this cycle, of course. And, uh, this is the wheel of karma. Like that. And you can get a human body, heavenly body, demon body, animal body, hellish body, ghost body, plant body, whatever. <laughs> All sorts of bodies you can get. Uh, going through this uh, cycle, birth and death. Okay. So, is there one way or many ways? So most religions say, only this way. You don't do this, you're condemned. We say, no, actually there are many ways. And within the Vedic literature itself, we have many ways. So we have karma yoga, for people who are qualified for that. There's jnana yoga, people who qualify for jnana, they can do that. And bhakti yoga, so many ways. Of course, they're not all equal, but some choice is allowed for people of different levels. So it's not just one way for everybody. So we got, it's like a ladder. Karma Yoga for the less uh, qualified. If you get more advanced, you do Jnana Yoga and Astanga or Raja Yoga. And uh, the topmost process is Bhakti Yoga. So, there are many processes, but they're not all equal also. Yeah, so we have Karma Yoga, and we have Jnana Yoga, we have Astanga Yoga and Raja Yoga, and we have Bhakti Yoga for our Yeah, like that. Now, of those processes, as I said, they're not all equal. 
So very clearly in the Bhagavad Gita, which is scripture, then Krishna declares Bhakti Yoga is the best of all uh, yogis. And then uh, the person who has faith in me and worships me, he is considered to be the best yogi. So therefore, uh, Bhakti Yoga is considered to be the best process. So that's the conclusion of Krishna and the Bhagavad Gita. So, uh, Bhakti Yoga is complete, so even if we don't do Karma Yoga and Jnana Yoga, you can get liberation, and you can also get everything in the material world that you need. That's also promised by Krishna at the end of the Bhagavad Gita. Wherever there's Krishna, the master of all mystics, and wherever there's Arjuna, the supreme archer, that means the devotee relationship, there will certainly be opulence, which means wealth, victory, extraordinary power, and morality. That's my opinion. So you get everything by worshipping Krishna and Bhakti. Oh, well this is, you don't need this, I guess. Okay, fine. Any question there? I have a little thingy here. I don't know if it's going to work, but... Hi, Yeah. Um, it can if you do bhakti yoga then you're, you develop spiritual senses if you do jnana you don't develop any senses because you don't need anything there like latent they're inherent there are well, they manifest according to doing bhakti yoga. Yeah. Otherwise, you don't need them for jnana and liberation because you don't see anything, you don't hear anything, you don't talk to anything. <laughs> yeah. And how you were talking about, um, like, certain parts of nothing that has been created a thousand or two, how many thousand years ago. Um, it's my understanding that like, humans have been on Earth for millions of years, so I'm guessing these things have been created and lost and created again continuously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is this modern history point of view, you know, 5,000 years, because they go, they analyze the language and stuff, and then they look at ancient texts and whatever, so they say, okay, that's 5,000 years old, Rig Veda or whatever, but we say it's eternal. And so, then that's only our beginning of Kali Yuga, so to speak, 5,000 years ago. So, it was there previously also, and four million years ago, at the beginning of Satya Yuga. And it was also before then, the previous whole cycle over there, the beginning of the day of Brahma, which was... How many millions of uh, 120 million years ago or something it was also there, which is difficult for modern historians to accept, of course. I guess it was pre-dinosaur area or something <laughs> before the dinosaurs. So we hear that um that uh, yesterday he took the one boat of the before and gave two other sages to develop, etc. But a lot of um, Hindu scholars, they glorify the Rig Veda as being the most authority because it's the oldest. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. is it that the Rig Veda came first? Because you sort of 
Yeah, well, that, that, that's of course modern historical analysis. Uh, if we take the uh, Bhagavad Gita, then there were more or less one Veda that got divided into four, so it wasn't that it, it was one old and then 2,000 years later, 1,000 years later, another came. They more or less came out simultaneously. Yeah. This is a little video of somebody. I don't know if I could get the thing working though, the sound. Oh, works. On left brain, right brain, actually. And then 
now. Our right hemisphere, it thinks in pictures, and it learns kinesthetically through the movement of our bodies. Information in the form of energy streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems, and then it explodes into this enormous collage of what this present moment looks like, what this present moment smells like and tastes like, what it feels like, and what it sounds like. I am an energy being connected to the energy all around me through the consciousness of my right hemisphere. We are energy beings connected to one another through the consciousness of our right hemispheres as one human family. And right here, right now, we are brothers and sisters on this planet here to make the world a better place. And in this moment, we are perfect, we are whole, and we are beautiful. My left hemisphere, our left hemisphere, is a very different place. Our left hemisphere thinks linearly and methodically. Our left hemisphere is all about the past and it's all about the future. Our left hemisphere is designed to take that enormous collage of the present moment and start picking out details, details, and more details about those details. It then I could not identify the position of my 
soar free like a great whale, glide through a sea of silent euphoria. Nirvana, I found nirvana. And I remember thinking there's no way I would ever be able to squeeze the enormousness of myself back inside this tiny little body. But then I realized, but I'm still alive. I'm still alive, and I have found nirvana. And, and if I have found nirvana, and I'm still alive, then everyone who is alive can find nirvana. And I picture the world filled with beautiful, peaceful, compassionate, loving people who knew that they could come to this space at any time, and that they could purposely choose to step to the right of their left hemisphere and find this peace. And then I realized, what a tremendous gift this experience could be. What, what a stroke of insight this could be to how we live our lives. So, who are we? We are the life force power of the universe with manual dexterity and two cognitive minds. And we have the power to choose moment by moment who and how we want to be in the world. Right here, right now, I can step into the consciousness of my right hemisphere where we are. I am the life force power of the universe. I'm the life force power, the 50 trillion beautiful molecular geniuses that make up my form. And one with all it is. Or I can choose to step into the consciousness of my left hemisphere where I become a single individual, a solid, separate from the flow, separate from you. I am Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, intellectual, Neuroanatomist. These are the we inside of me. Which would you choose? Which do you choose? And when? I believe that the more time we spend choosing to run the deep inner peace circuitry of our right hemispheres, the more peace we will project into the world, and the more peaceful our planet will be. And I thought that was an idea worth spreading. <laughs> okay. Okay, Hare Krishna. <laughs>